0: let us come to God in prayer once more let us pray may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight O lord our strength and our redeemer amen being the eldest child of three in my family gave me quite a different experience from my wife, I suspect. In my family, my parents had that fine line to walk of never showing that they had a favorite child. Though the same can't be said of my gran, uh, because I was our only grandson and as such I was obviously the favorite boy. And that's probably quite like my wife's experience for being the only child, she literally was the favorite. I don't remember my sisters and I ever accusing my parents of having favourites but I came across this picture online that colours out just because of technical things, my, it reads my kids are always accusing me of having a favourite child which is ridiculous because I don't really like any of them, <laughs> I'm sure none of you have ever said that or thought it and it's easy to laugh about such silly examples of avert favouritism or lack thereof and I suspect that if we did a quick survey none of us would favor favor favoritism and so when we read from James about favoritism in the early church we probably think what were you doing, what were you doing, how could you be so silly and we likely feel like well this is going to be a short sermon because no one ever shows favoritism in our church and I've not got an issue with favoritism but I suspect (coughs) That favoritism is more deeply hidden than we realize working unconsciously to to undermine the life we live as a community of believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ and it's when we dig into what is wrong with favoritism that we can then maybe more see clearly see where favoritism may lurk in our own lives so what's wrong with favoritism based on our passage I want to give you Four things to take away. Firstly, favoritism honors the wrong things. In verses 2 to 4, James describes a situation where two individuals are treated so very differently. There's some debate in the commentaries about whether this is a real scene or hypothetical, whether it's a church service with individual Christians involved or something else entirely. Uh, The clearest description for me was that these verses may describe two visitors who are unlikely to be Christian and they are coming to a Christian gathering where the general populace is also welcome to attend. They have to be shown where to be seated, for example. But whatever the case, what James describes here is realistic enough that maybe it was drawn from personal experience, Maybe it was from a report he had heard of the churches and people could well imagine this type of thing happening. A rich man walks in and is treated so very differently from the poor man. Clearly, one has rank in money, the other does not. And to that rich man, special attention is given and he is conducted politely to his seat. The poor man, on the other hand, is told to stand there or sit at my feet, and for no other reason than rank and money, thus valuing people for no other reason than external features. One is treated with honour and the other one is barely even welcomed, this is in fact put in a place of subjection where the message is quite clear about who and what the church values and that make, this example makes complete sense of the word favoritism because it literally means to receive someone according to their face, according to what you see of them and James says that to discriminate in such a manner, to judge in that way, is evil, it is wicked and that sounds pretty strong, don't you think? But if, as the scriptures show, God is good and He shows no partiality, he has no favorites, then to do so to discriminate is less than good and thus involves thoughts, words and actions that are less than good and so evil. Favoritism honors the wrong things, in particular it honors external things and we know that to be wrong, don't we? We've often probably heard the words of the Lord to the prophet Samuel, The Lord does not look at the things people look at, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Favoritism honors the wrong things, especially external things. So, do we do that, friends? Do we do that? As a silly experiment and thought, I'm almost tempted to come next Sunday in a pair of jeans. I'd probably still wear a shirt and a jacket, because I like it. But if to be honest, to be honest, coming in a suit, I don't really choose it for me. It's not what I feel comfortable in, it's not my everyday wear. I don't feel a particular burden to do so. So if I rocked up in a pair of jeans next week, which I might just do, <laughs> would you treat me differently? Would you think of me differently? You probably wouldn't treat me differently because we're quite a, we're pretty good at hiding our feelings. But inside, would your estimation of me drop, or could you look past the external and honour what matters the most in the Lord's sight, someone's heart as they come to worship Him? And as I say, it's a silly example, but likely there are external things which we honour, and those things in the sight of God don't matter really. And as such, we are honouring the wrong things. We are showing a form of favouritism. Another way that favouritism honours the wrong things is it has a focus on what will benefit us most. In verses 5 to 7 here, James continues to build his case against favoritism. He points out in verse 5 that it is amongst the poor that the church has seen such response to the gospel. It is amongst the poor where there has been faith and love towards God. It is such people, poor in the eyes of the world, literally destitute. It is these folks who have become rich in faith and will inherit the kingdom of God. The world writes them off the world thinks they are paupers with seemingly so little to give but they are now rich beyond measure for they are heirs of Christ and what's so striking going into verse 6 is that the church has dishonored such people the church of James's time has humiliated insulted even oppressed the poor by favoring the rich yet what is mind-boggling is that it is the rich who are persecuting the church and ridiculing the name of Jesus, the church is chasing the favor of these people, is chasing their approval, favoritism honors the wrong things and it does so here by focusing on what will benefit us most whilst rejecting what seemingly offers us so little in return. And once again that might seem distant to us to our lives we're probably not trying to curry favor with people who are persecuting us because thankfully we don't live in a land of persecution where that temptation could be very real but favoritism honors the wrong things and it does so by focusing on who or what will benefit us most what will profit us most and in our time I think the application of that is that we tend towards a favoritism of self, if there is anyone we favor, we favor ourselves, we do things for our benefit and what will profit us and in doing so we honor the wrong things, we show favoritism and within a church context that flavor of favoritism, the favoritism of self can be stirred up by a lot of things, whether we liked the hymns or not, whether the children were quiet enough or not, whether the intimations were short enough so that the children didn't have to be quiet for too long. And when the church operates with regard to favoritism of self, do you know what gets pushed out? God and His purposes. I remember on one occasion when I was a relatively young Christian, I was about 20 at the time and uh, I got involved with the Church of Scotland summer uh, mission group called Impact and we went around the country um, doing holiday clubs for churches that couldn't run their own holiday club and so one team of us uh, went up north somewhere and we duly went along on the Sunday to the Sunday morning service and everything within me reacted against the minister. I was sitting beside my friend Laurie, I can still picture him, he was sitting on my left hand side and both after and during the service, I grumbled to him about this guy in the pulpit. I wasn't getting anything from his sermon, that this guy was talking rubbish. And Laurie, who's the same age as me but had been a Christian for a bit longer, after the service turns to me and he shows me the pages of notes that he took that morning and what he said will stay with me, probably forever, there's always something there if we're listening for God's voice, now Laurie and myself, even now, we're still in favor of good and right teaching, it should be, seek to be as good and right as it can be because God says so, that's important in the scriptures, but my point is this really, I had turned Sunday worship into something that was all about me and if it didn't fit my flavor, if it didn't tick my box, I wrote it off and I grumbled. Rather than coming simply to worship God in whatever form was on offer that day, rather than coming to give him the honor that his due by laying down my agenda. I came and I made it all about me, but what if I had laid down my agenda and favoured myself less? What might I I have heard that day? friend? when it comes to church, too often what we do, what we decide, what we invest our time and our money in, what we make our priorities is done for self. Is done for our benefit, our profit and so God and his purposes are pushed to the sides even though apparently this is meant to all be about him and we sing songs and prayers about him favoritism focuses on self but we we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. We, that, that's a call which is not about self. And God also calls us to go make disciples of all the nations and that's not about us either. What is more, Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. Jesus taught, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friend." Brothers and sisters, we are called to a costly way of life. To pick up our cross, to give of our lives for others and for the Lord. Favoritism is wrong because it honors the wrong things. It focuses on the external. It focuses on self. I wonder where we might be doing these things. But favoritism has another side as well. And it only honors the wrong things it dishonors God and verses 8 to 11 here James speaks of the royal law found in scripture and then quotes and illustrates from God's law now we might be tempted to think that here he is meaning that the royal law is simply love your neighbor as yourself and I think we tend towards that conclusion because in our culture we talk about there being a golden rule So, we might make the easy mistake of thinking that love your neighbor as yourself is the golden rule, because that's what everybody tells us, and so that must naturally be the royal law. But in speaking of the royal law, James is referring to the king's law in totality, to all the commands, the way of life given by the king, and that king, as I said to the children, is Jesus the Christ for Christ literally means the anointed one he was that promised Messiah that King who would come to bring God's kingdom upon the earth so James is referring to the whole of God's commands but as Jesus himself highlighted the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself for it forms the basis for many of the other laws As a result, James can then speak of those other laws in verses 11. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, for these are underpinned by the love we give to others, specifically the honour we bestow to other human beings. Murder is a clear case of dishonouring the victim, but adultery is as well. Because it demonstrates in unmistakable ways that personal gratification is more important than spouse or children or family. And so dishonors them. And by referencing these commands here, James is trying to help us see that favoritism should be equated with these most horrific of sins. Because favoritism clearly breaks the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, if you break one command, you've in effect broken the whole law. It is indivisible. They are all the royal law, the law of the king. And to break just one is to disobey the king and so render us guilty before him. As a result, we we end up breaking the greatest commandment. Can you remember what Jesus said it was? Love the Lord. With every fiber of your being. I'm paraphrasing slightly. Favoritism, not only honors the wrong things, it dishonors God. Because when we show favoritism, we not only fail to love our neighbor, we fail to love the Lord. And so rightly then, in the middle of that paragraph, James says, but if you show favoritism, you sin. It's truly that serious. And as such, it leads James to remind his readers of the divine judgment that awaits us all. He wrote, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There will be a judgment. Jesus said so himself and it will be against the law that gives freedom but to describe the law that way might sound a bit odd. We probably don't use that language very often about the law and maybe we feel that because God's law can appear restricting it can appear to limit our choice but in saying that the law gives freedom James is in accord with all of scripture and with the teaching of Jesus that God's word his law is given not to hinder life but to protect and nurture life it's not a law of bondage it's a law of freedom And when we heed God's law it will bring us into greater freedom, greater blessing and fullness of life than we can ever know apart from it. And I dearly hope that we know that from experience when we may have wanted to go our own way and maybe we did so many times yet it did not lead to the life we thought it would, it it rather led to dissatisfaction maybe greater brokenness even to a form of bondage. But I hope we've known the opposite experience of giving up our own way of heeding God's way and so finding greater life, greater freedom because we've walked in obedience to him and his law. I'm sure we have those stories around us as a congregation where God has called us away from our own path and called us to walk his path and as we've done that individually as a congregation it has brought life. One of the interesting things that um, we did as a youth worker committee is that we looked at the history of Brighton's parish church and it was striking that I don't think it was until about the 90s someone I'm sure will keep me right, maybe late 80s, early 90s, until children were part of our service, which for me sounds really odd. Um, I remember um, growing up as a young person, I can remember being under six and being in church with my family, and I can remember my dad, my dad's a reasonable singer, and he would belt out the hymns, which is probably why I built out the hymns, Uh, but his, his example had an impact on me. And if we want our children to grow up and own the faith, then they have to be amongst us, they can't just be ushered out to the side and told to be kept quiet. They need to, to see it modeled, they need to see it here, and I'm so glad as a church we changed from going that way, where children were kept separate, to where children are an integral part of our church, that we welcome them, we support them, we nurture them. Because if we're at where we're at as a church, we're in free fall numerically. We'll have one minister for every three churches in five to ten years' time in about 10 years' time were projected to be non-existent as a denomination if the rate of numbers of members continues to decline at what it currently is. So we are paying paying the price for what we chose to do for decades, where we told the children to shut up or not even come into the service. And I'm so glad we're changing that and have changed that and we continue to change that Because that is not in alignment with God's word. If you look back in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were with the adults of Israel learning God's word together. Being together as a church family has been part of God's people for millennia. And to separate them and tell them to shut up, I don't think it's God's way. And if we want to see life, if we want to see them own the faith. This has to be a place where we don't show favoritism, where we don't usher them out to the site and try and keep them quiet. And I know it's distracting, I know it can be hard to hear, but your choice is either a church with a future and with children, or quite literally the opposite. Because last week in Blackberry's, she'll tell Mary Avonside, not one child. Not one child. And that will be replicated across our nation. You have a choice and one way leads to death and one way leads to life because I think God is in that way where children are given the space and they're part of our church family and all of this because James talks about favoritism and he wants us to live in accord with God's royal law. He wants us to live out who we are. And in verse 1, he said, brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. He's saying that if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be part of the people of God, if you claim to have salvation in the name of Jesus, then it's time to act like it. It's time to live in accord with the royal law. It's time to show love and kindness. It's time to be humble and put others first because that's what Jesus did. The Apostle Paul put it this way, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich on the cross on the cross Jesus gave his life for you he gave up the glory and honor of heaven to come and be born in the muck of the stable and to be killed upon the humiliation of the cross for love of you love of me he humbled himself he became obedient to death itself taking the very nature of a servant and with such love such grace he seeks to draw us back to himself and and if that is known if it's personally accepted it must leave its impact on us if our faith be genuine And so James echoes the words, the sentiment of Jesus in the parable of the merciful servant, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who is not merciful. It's not that our mercy earns divine mercy, but that our mercy flows from having received God's mercy, His loving kindness for ourselves. As Jesus said, whoever has been forgiven little loves little, and conversely, whoever loves much has been forgiven much, because when we come to realize that at the cross Jesus paid the penalty, he faced the judgment that we truly deserve, then it leaves its mark, for we also know that not only did God secure justice at the cross, God secured mercy wide and free, he sent Jesus in love for us, that upon Jesus, upon the sinless one, judgment came, our judgment He gave his life in ransom, sacrifice for many, that there might also be forgiveness for many, that any who respond can know salvation and allow us to stand before the judgment seat of God on that final day, not with our own shabby record, our shabby worthless record, but now we can come stand before God with the righteousness of Jesus completely forgiven, the slate wiped clean, all sin literally forgotten, and it's when you come to own that, to know God's love and grace for yourself, to know in the core of your being that you are forgiven and reconciled to God, well then you know that at the cross mercy triumphed over judgment, because that one perfect life was given for an imperfect you and me that sacrifice leaves its mark a mark that points towards God's grace and so gives him the honor but favoritism dishonors God by mocking the triumph of the cross favoritism mocks mercy it belittles the sacrifice of Jesus for it literally says his death has barely left its mark on us, that his death was was so insignificant that I'm not changed. The cross is of is little value. That's what favoritism does. And so favoritism dishonors God and it should have no place within the church and it honors the wrong things in this early part of James chapter 2 we are called beyond the wisdom of the world as Kenny reminded us in week one we are called to live according to the royal law we are called to honor the triumph of the cross we are called to honor God first by dying to self and fixing our eyes on our on the ways and values of our God on his kingdom that we may then come to know true life and true freedom. May it be so. Amen.